Revelation 19. And I want to draw your attention to verse 6. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and her wife hath made herself ready. And what I want to preach about tonight, I don't think I've ever done a sermon just on this topic before. I did cover it a little bit when I went through Revelation 19, but I wanted to focus on this. I had some questions about it recently, but I want to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if you've gone to a Baptist church most of your life, pretty much all you know about the marriage supper of the Lamb is everything that that particular pastor thinks we're going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it typically involves his favorite food. And uh, we've all done some of that before. You know, I think biscuits and gravy is going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. You know, it's something like along those lines. We've all heard that kind of thing. Or another time you'll hear marriage supper of the Lamb references is when everybody explains how it ain't going to be here for one minute of the tribulation. Sure enough, while y'all are suffering through the tribulation, I'm going to be up eating beans and cornbread at the marriage supper of the lamb, right? And so here, here's, but here's a big question too. Are you sure the marriage supper of the lamb is in heaven or is it on earth? You know, what are we going to eat at the marriage supper of the lamb? I actually have no idea what we're going to eat at the marriage supper of the lamb. I, I, I have my opinions like every Baptist preacher and it's all my favorite food, but I do want to uh, take a look at what the Bible says about this subject and I think there is a very important concept of this that we should be focusing on that often isn't talked about. And because when it comes to the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb, when it comes to the idea of the bride too, a lot of people will take these things that the Bible does talk about. And because it's not real clear all the details of it, what people will often do is they will insert their own thoughts in there and use it as a way to advance some weird doctrine they have. For example, in the Baptist brighter world, they have a lot of crazy opinions about uh, the bride and they'll look at how the Bible talks about the marriage and you got the bride, but you know, there's also guests that are there. Who are the guests? And then they'll teach that, you know, you have some people that are saved, but they're not necessarily the bride, you know? And I mean, who are those guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb? And what they're doing is they're, they're emphasizing something that the Bible is not emphasizing, and they're using it to teach something that the Bible doesn't teach. And if we would actually go and look exactly what the Bible is talking about and what it's trying to express and teach us, it's going to make us much less likely to fall for some of that weird teaching. So uh, hopefully, as we go through this subject, you know, we can, we're going to mainly focus on what it actually is talking about but hopefully we can kind of debunk some of the weird teaching surrounding this too as we go. So, Because when it comes to this subject, there are a lot of strange beliefs because this passage is mysterious in many ways. And so it's very easy for theologians to make it mean whatever they want it to mean. So, uh, and what you're typically going to find when it comes to this subject, most people interpret it uh, in whatever way will fit their preconceived ideas about timelines, you know, end times, or other pet doctrines. And that's not what we need to do. Let's look at what the Bible is actually trying to tell us. And so I'm hoping to just show a clear, honest, consistent interpretation. And I think if I succeed, you'll see this passage does not give any credibility to some of the whacked out beliefs that are out there. So 
First thing we need to do before we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb part, uh, let's get some context. So notice in verse 1 of Revelation 19, it says, And after these things, I had heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. So after what things? Well, 17 and 18 are all about the destruction of Babylon. So understand, too, when people are talking about, you know, we're going to be eating marriage supper of the Lamb while y'all are fighting tribulation. Well, here's, here's the thing about that. The marriage supper of the Lamb actually, for sure, takes place after the destruction of Babylon. So guess what? We still have room for the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven according to our theology, too, don't we? Because, I mean, how long is the supper going to take? Okay? You know, it's like, is it really going to take seven years? You know, so... These are just dumb things people bring up, you know, because they make good one-liners and they get a few amens at the, at the camp meeting or whatever. But, but either way, we don't see any reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb until after the destruction of Babylon. And we do not believe that we're going to be here for the destruction of Babylon. We're going to be up in heaven, amen. But, um, so, we're, you know, we're in agreement with them there. But verse 2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. <clears throat> and again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And so notice just the finality of this language. This is a major event that has taken place. Something big has been completed. God has avenged the blood that has been shed. This is a big thing. This and. We're not going to spend any time really talking about who Babylon is or any of that. But after God avenges the blood of the martyrs through the destruction of this great city, heaven is rejoicing over it. Heaven is excited about what God has done. Notice this. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants. And ye that fear him, both small and great. So notice the 24 elders here. Right? Now, notice too how these 24 elders are talking about the bride, making it clear that the 24 elders do not represent the church, which is what a lot of people tell you. That's, a, that's another thing they will use to prove that we are all in heaven, you know, in Revelation 4 and 5, because you have the reference to the 24 elders, and that's the church. Well, then why are the 24 elders talking about the bride as something separate uh, unless they're you know because a lot of people assume they're the same thing well that doesn't make any sense at all does it and i believe the 24 elders and we're not going to spend much time on this but i just believe the 24 elders are literally 24 elders that's what i believe and i don't i don't believe they represent the church now it is a mystery of who the 24 elders are but here's the main thing we need to get from the 24 elders not figure out who they are I don't think we even need to worry about that. But I believe their role is clear. And they are, they are either literal individuals who represent certain authority, or it could be that they aren't even literal individuals, but a picture of a power and authority that literally exists that will be given to Jesus Christ. Okay, so here, because here's, so here, let me ask, uh, ask a trivia question. Okay, that we're going to get the answer for here in a little bit. But a little bit later in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, it says he's wearing many crowns. Anybody want to guess how many crowns he's wearing? I think 24. So where, where do you get that number? 
Well, in Revelation 4, 4, it says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders, sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne, and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, you want to know why people get mixed up in a lot of their theology on Revelation? Is because, again, people are going to the book of Revelation, making it all about themselves. All right, and, and listen, there is nothing wrong with going to the book of Revelation and trying to find out where we're at. Nothing wrong with that. But the focal point of the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focal point of the book of Revelation. And Jesus is receiving all glory, honor, and power. And these 24 elders are casting their crowns at his feet. So you're saying, Brother Tommy, we're not going to cast crowns at his feet? Uh, the only place where that comes from is right here where the 24 elders are doing it. Now, I know it's in a lot of songs. As we cast our crowns down at his feet. Well, I hope you're one of the 24 elders. Otherwise, you shouldn't have been singing that song. And that, by the way, the cross is a very, I, I love that song. It sounds really pretty. It's a pretty song. But boy, there's a lot of dispensational stuff in that song. I had, I, my wife and I were practicing it one time before church. I wanted to sing it, and I was, I was actually paying attention to the words. I'm like, I'm not singing this. This is very dispensational. I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing that. But anyway, that's another subject for another day. But again, these are these things that have come in our theology. What are we doing on that day? No, the more important question is what is Jesus doing? And you know what he is? He's receiving all honor and power and glory. He's receiving all authority. And notice too that when it does this, before, while they're giving their crowns to him, and crowns are a symbol of authority, are they not? and they're giving it all to Jesus Christ, and they are acknowledging that all creation was made for him and for his pleasure. Now, what happened at the beginning of creation? God made man. God put him in the garden. But man, what did he, he made himself God by disobeying God, by going against the authority of God, causing a separation from man and God, causing him to be banished from the garden, and causing the whole need for a Savior to come and pay for the sins of the earth. But understand, anytime man sins, it is, it's rebellion against God. You know why we sin? Because we're doing what we want to do instead of doing what Jesus Christ wants us to do. And you know what? God didn't put us here for us. He put us here for Him. Okay? Our life is not about us. Our life is all about Him. And that's why when we talk about discipleship this morning, Jesus has every right to ask anything of us. He has every right to do that. We were created for His pleasure and we need to recognize that. And we forget it all the time. But one of these days, Jesus is going to get the honor and glory that he deserves. And so he, I believe those many crowns are just 24. Now, I'm not going to go into speculation because I just don't know. And I don't have any good theories on why 24 and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I could probably come up with a few guesses, but that's all they would be. Not educated, not really based on much. But... We do not need to understand God made all things, including man, for his pleasure, but our sin causes separation. So verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And now, we believe we're the bride of Christ. How do we make ourselves ready? 
Well, Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You know how we made ourselves ready? We believed on Christ. And then he made us ready. He washed us. He cleansed us. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations. You know how we're able to do that? Because Christ was slain and we've been redeemed. We've been purchased by his blood. Revelation 7, 13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Not by enduring to the end. They made them white by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, that's how we got ourselves ready. Revelation 19.8 And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. But where does our righteousness come from? Our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Romans 4.8 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness not, might be imputed unto them also. So, without a doubt, our righteousness, it comes from our faith that we put in Jesus Christ. He washes us, he cleans us up. So, Amazingly, though, people who believe in some kind of work salvation, believe you can lose your salvation, things like that, they'll read Revelation 19, ignore everything else they read in Revelation and the rest of the Bible, and they'll see the bride, you know, bride hath made herself ready and like, you better do something. Baptist briders will look at that passage. And it's like, you know, there's some people out there, they're saved, but they've not made themselves ready. They're not going to be the bride. They'll go into the parable of the ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. Five foolish, they didn't go to hell. But they weren't ready for the wedding. They'll, they'll tell you things like that. And I've already preached about the virgins. Ten virgins, I'm not going to re-preach that. But folks, that's, that's a whole lot of nonsense. And it's absolutely not biblical. That is people reading their theology into a parable. Reading it into a story. They've already decided something is true in their mind. Now they've got to find something in the Bible that fits it. And so they'll come up with stuff like that. And they ignore the context and the focus of the entire passage. And again, when it comes to Revelation, one of the reasons people get so many things wrong is they're looking for themselves in the passage instead of staying focused on the focal point of the passage, which is Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of these things. Yeah, not wrong to look for yourself, but be careful that you don't go looking so hard for things, you start finding stuff that's not there. That's what you got to watch out for. So, Revelation 19, 10, or uh, verse 9, I'm sorry. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So we got to figure out who's actually called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Got some saved people out there. 
When I go to the southern accent, that usually means I'm preaching heresy. Don't take what I'm saying serious, all right? Got some people out there. Again, they're saved. But they ain't worth shooting. They ain't getting called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hey, don't just read your theology into that. Okay, this sounds pretty important. Blessed are they who called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do I know if I got called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? I mean, have you ever heard about a nice dinner or something somebody had and you didn't get invited? That kind of stinks, doesn't it? Okay, you know, I, if, if there's invites going out, I'd kind of like to, I'd like to get my invite to this thing. Well, let's go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 22 because we do have other places in the Bible where we have references to a supper. And I believe these things are without a doubt related. But Matt, notice what it says in Matthew 22 and verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, seeing, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt loose, and bring them to me. And this is the story of the triumphal entry. And let's go ahead and skip down. We don't uh, necessarily need to read this whole thing. But after he has his triumphal entry, okay, then notice what it says in verse, um, well, you know, I'm in chapter 21. That's why I'm confused. I'm, in chapter I'm supposed to be in chapter 22. There it is. So this is after his triumphal entry, he gives this parable. I knew that part. It says, Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Okay, now I'm just going to tell you what these represent as we go. The certain king is God the Father. The Son is Jesus Christ. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. His servants were the prophets. His servants were, uh, were people like the disciples, and those who were bidden were the Jews. But they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready Come unto the marriage. And they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. They did not like the Jews' treatment of, the, of his messengers, and so he burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There should be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, we all understand what the problem was when they went to the Jews. They had no faith. The Bible tells us that over and over again. They had no faith. They would not believe on Christ. They did not recognize their sinful condition. They did not see their need for a Savior. And they did not recognize the fact that Jesus Christ was the Savior. And so as a result of that, they ended up being destroyed. They ended up you know, having Jerusalem destroyed. The temple was left without one stone upon another. The next few chapters are nothing but parables describing that whole thing. Jesus just flat out tells them there's not going to be one stone left upon another. 
He's prophesying judgment. And so, after that, this happens, we see him just going out telling everybody they can. People like us, good and bad, going out in the highways and hedges, inviting everyone. You know what you have too? You have some people trying to sneak in who don't have a wedding garment. You have people that are, uh, that are you know, the phonies that are going to come. People who call themselves Christians that aren't really Christians. But notice how when it comes to the invitation, the invitation was to everyone. But again, not everyone accepts that call. But you know, everyone who gets invited, that's a blessing. I mean, you know, isn't it, doesn't it feel good to just get invited? If there is going to be a big party with some good food somewhere, even if you can't go, doesn't it feel good to get invited? Have you ever been there before? Maybe you didn't get invited to a party and you couldn't win anyway. Wouldn't have been nice to get invited, you know? And maybe the people knew that you weren't going to be able to make it. But it, it's a blessing to even just get invited. And so, you know, people, it is, it is, it is a blessed thing to be invited to a marriage. And so, again, or to a dinner like this. And let me just, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But why is it so great to get invited to a dinner? Why is it so important? Somebody tell me. Is it because of the food selection? No, it's the fellowship, right? It's, it's to know, hey, these people want to have communion with me. These people want to have fellowship with me. That's why it's important, folks. That's why, that's why it means a lot. That's why it's good to be hospitable and do that kind of thing. It, does, it means a lot to people to just know, to, just to have the fellowship. And sometimes you can get invited over to somebody's house and you have great fellowship and terrible food. Sometimes you can have terrible food or great food and terrible fellowship. You know, it's nice if you can have both. But either way, it does. It feels good. It's a blessing just to be invited to something like that. And thankfully, we've all been invited to be a part of this. So those who are of faith or those who have believed the gospel... Uh, they will be a part of this marriage supper of the Lamb, unlike the Jews who rejected Christ and are going to be punished based on the parables in Matthew chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25. And we're not going to go through all those. So again, here's, so here's a big question, though. Do we actually eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? I've had some people tell me we don't actually eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, if that's true, I'm going to be very disappointed. Because I've heard, again, I've heard a lot of preaching about what we're going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it always makes me hungry thinking about it. I'm, I'm getting hungry thinking about it right now. I'm expecting something really good that day. But, you know, I do, I do believe, based on what we see in, verses nine, uh, in verse 9 of Matthew 22, that we probably are going to be eating. But let me show you why some people think we're not going to be eating. Look what it says in Revelation 19, in verse 17. It says, And I saw an angel standing... In the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. So that's birds eating right there. And the food at the supper is of kings and horses. Now, if we're eating at this, I call the horses. I don't want to eat the flesh. I don't want to eat the flesh of kings. But uh, and, and you know, and just just a side note, you know. But when I was in Israel, where I filmed the Bible Way to Heaven video, watch that video. You can see birds flying around behind me, folks. That's where it's all going down. 
right behind where I was, down in that valley, that's where that's all going down, where the flesh of kings are going to be getting eaten stuff. And I'm just watching those birds like, y'all keep hanging out here. You, got a, you guys got a big feast coming one of these days. But I do think verse 17 is actually referring to a different supper. I, I do. I, I do believe that. But in verse 10, it says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So notice this fellow servant has the testimony of Jesus like John. He didn't talk about his own testimony. And that's, that should be our testimony. Our testimony is the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to be in heaven. So everyone in heaven, from the first one there to the last one too, will be there by the blood of Christ. That's why by the way of the cross, that's why songs like that, I shall go in. Those songs, they're moving songs. I see what they're trying to do. But everybody gets in by the way of the cross. Everybody gets in by the cross. The thief, everybody on all those songs, they act like the thief was the first one to get in by the way of the cross. No, he was not. Everyone gets in by the way of the cross. The martyrs do not get in their own way. You know, no, the sinners saved by grace, we all go in by the blood of Christ. And that's why we've banned, I shall go in in this church too. We don't let people sing that song here. It's a pretty song. I understand what it's trying to do, but it's just not theologically accurate. Everybody gets in by the blood of Christ. So, again, the big question that nobody wants to talk about, though, is what is the purpose of the supper? Now go to Luke chapter 14 and verse 12. It says, Then said he unto them that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one, and when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And notice that statement there. Because again, I mean, what's so special about that bread? Well, it's not even about eating the bread, but it's about where you're at. It's about who you are with, who you are a part of when you eat that, when he makes that statement. And so after this man makes that statement, Jesus goes into a parable and then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So again, this is another parable that Jesus is speaking against the Jews that were rejecting him. They were bidden to the supper, but they rejected him. They made excuse. 
They didn't trust him. They didn't believe on him. So Jesus said, just go get whoever will listen. And that's who we are. Just Gentiles. That's all we are. We're just people who listen. We're just people who heard about Jesus Christ. We heard about salvation. We heard about heaven. We believe that there was a place called hell where the lost were going to go. And we just accepted a free gift of eternal life. We have nothing going for us physically. We have nothing going for us culturally. We have nothing going for us in any way that makes us worthy. All we have is faith. That's all we have. That's, that's all we are. Where the Jews, they had a much better culture. They did a lot of the things of the law. They practiced a lot of these different things. They had the bloodlines, all that stuff. But you know what they didn't have? Faith. They were children in whom was no faith. And so they are in trouble. In fact, they, he says, they will not be a part of my supper. They're not going to be a part of that supper. And he's saying that like, this is, this is a good thing. This is a really important thing. And there are, you know, a, a lot of places they will have, you know, big banquets and things, even politically, you know, they have, what is that one banquet that they have? The White House Correspondence Banquet, and they'll invite all these news people to it, and they do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, people, you know, there's, there's people out there who probably, you know, are potential people to be invited, but maybe they don't make the cut. You know, they probably get pretty insulted by that. You know, it probably upsets them. And it would probably be pretty insulting to the White House, too, if they did invite somebody like, yeah, I'm not going. You know, we always hear about that thing. Whenever Republicans in office, the athletes that don't go to the White House, you know, after they win the World Series and stuff. And, you know, nobody cares about that stuff. But they make a big deal about it because these kind of things culturally are very important. And so again, this supper, it is, it's a big deal because you know what? Having fellowship with God is a big deal, which is what it's all about. It's not about the food that we're going to eat. It's not what it's about. It's about the fellowship with God. And one of the most common ways in the Bible we see people practicing fellowship is through a meal, through eating. Today, culturally, isn't that what we do? I mean, typically when you get invited over to somebody's house, do you have to have food to fellowship? But what do we always do? We always have food. And we'd all be pretty disappointed. If, if you, I mean, you know, we should just try, try that sometime. Just invite everybody over, make a big day. Hey, we're, we got a big night coming up. We're going to have a big time of fellowship. And we're inviting everybody over from the church over. And, you know, I'm probably going to go hungry. There's expecting there to be food. And then just have no food. It's no food. And you know what? We're going to have a problem with it. People are going to be like, you know, where's the food? Oh, you have to have food to have fellowship? Well, no, you don't have to. But, you know, culturally, we do. Especially as Baptists. We do. It's, it's always been that way. Again, it's not about the food. It's about the fellowship. If y'all can get that, I think it's going to help us understand what this, you know, marriage supper of the Lamb is all about. So now we are in verse 11. And so before we uh, can answer the question, this is a very important question about the purpose of the supper. Let's look at the Revelation 19 to see if we watch this, this marriage supper actually take place. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress 
of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's appropriate to an appropriate title for someone who is wearing many crowns. The, the crowns that were given to him in heaven by the 24 elders. And he is, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's over all of them. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them. And he had received a mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Now folks, without a doubt, we just saw a supper here. But this supper is for the birds, literally. This supper is the birds eating flesh. So this, this marriage supper of the Lamb, when do we see it take place in the Bible? Because the reference to it is only here in Revelation 19, in the book of Revelation. I do believe in these other places we saw in the Gospels are pictures of it and references to it. But we do not see this supper taking place anywhere in heaven. It does not show that. But I'm going to give you my opinion because I do think there's going to be a supper where we eat. Okay? In fact, I know there's going to be uh, I, I know there's going to be one. We definitely have a supper and I think it's okay to call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if this was the supper, then that would mean the supper either took, if it took place in heaven, that it would have had to happen between verses 10 and 11 if it takes place in heaven. And if you look at those two verses, you know, I mean, okay, you know, we have, the, uh, it says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. They said to me, see thou do it not. I'm thy fellow servant, thy brethren, that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But then right after that, we go into this vision where heaven's open and Jesus Christ comes to earth, smites the nations. So I guess it could happen then. But, again, do we actually see it take place somewhere in the Bible or in the, in the book of Revelation? So, here's what I believe about this marriage supper of the Lamb. So, the first, let's answer this question, what is the purpose of the supper? It's about fellowship. Now, when God made man, where did God put man? He put him on earth. And where did God walk with man? On earth. God walked with man in the garden. In the cool of the day, God has wanted to restore fellowship with man, and he wants to do it on earth. And I believe that the, this marriage supper is going to take place on earth. The, the entire Bible is a story about how man fell and how man lost fellowship with God. And it's giving us the whole story about how Jesus Christ has restored that fellowship between God and man. God could have just wiped man out and just finished with him, but God did not do that. God found a way to restore fellowship between God and man. And so we see in the Bible too, God wanted to fellowship with Israel. 
We're not going to go back and read that story. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, God wanted to fellowship with him. But remember what happened when he came down on the mountain and the mountain melted? You know what God told Israel after they cleaned themselves up? God said, don't let them touch that mountain or I'm going to kill them. And so what did God do? God made a law. God made a tabernacle. I'll, I'll dwell in a tabernacle in the midst of you, but only the high priest is going to be able to come in once a year. And boy, you all are going to have to go through so much stuff just for that because God is that holy. But God has wanted to have a real fellowship. That, that wouldn't have been much of a fellowship back then. But that's what they had to do then because they were not acceptable. But you know what? We talked about this the other day. When Jesus comes down to earth the next time, guess what? We will be ready. In fact, he's going he's gonna to catch us up. At, he's going to send his angels to gather us up, and we're going to ever be with the Lord. Now, what's different about the cleansing that we have done versus the cleansing that Israel did for themselves? We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We made ourselves ready when we believed on Christ. That's the difference right there. And so... Having said all that, I, do, I believe the marriage supper takes place on earth right after the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 20. So again, we don't see us sitting down eating a meal together anywhere in heaven in the Bible. It's just not there. We, we do not see that. But remember, the kingdom that the Bible talks about too of God, the, king, it, of the kingdom of God, it's going to be here on this earth. Remember what that man said, blessed is he that eateth bread in your kingdom. And I believe that's something that's going to happen on earth. And so notice what we see in Revelation chapter 20. So right after we have this reference to this marriage supper, the bride hath made herself ready. In chapter 20, verse 1, after Jesus defeats the armies, after he defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he casts them in the bottomless pit, after Babylon has been destroyed. That is, you know, that I believe represents all kinds of wickedness, especially false religion that has been leading more people to hell than anything. It says, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent. Right there is that connection to Eden. Because what, what did Satan come as in Eden? A serpent. When Satan came as a serpent, he, got, he deceived man because the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He deceived Adam and Eve into eating that fruit. And you know what it did? It broke the fellowship. S Satan, as a serpent, he was the one who caused the fellowship between God and man to be broken. Now that the bride has made herself ready, before, we're able to, before God's going to be ready to have that fellowship with us on this earth, you know what he's going to do? He's going to take care of the one that broke that fellowship. And he's going to lay hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. So Satan is the one who caused the fellowship to be broken when he deceived man in the garden as a serpent. And we see that in the beginning of the Bible. We see the serpent breaking that fellowship with man. At the end of the Bible, we see Jesus Christ restoring that fellowship and judging the serpent that caused the fellowship to be broken. Folks, it's about the fellowship. It's about the fellowship between God and man. It's not so much about the food. It's not so, you know, we're not supposed to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb 
and use it to prove our timeline one way or the other. You know what it ultimately is about that we should all be able to agree on? It's about fellowship. We will be able to have supper with Jesus Christ. We will be able to have that fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so we see a direct connection at the end of our Bible to the beginning of our Bible. And so while Revelation 20 also does not give us the details of that supper, you know, understand too, that Revelation 20 covers a thousand years of history. So, you know, a lot's going to happen in that thousand years. Is it, is it too much for me to think we're going to have some kind of supper with Jesus during that time? I mean, a thousand years, I'll bet it's going to happen somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen somewhere. Uh, and so I think what we're, we're supposed to understand, the supper is something that takes place on earth after Jesus returns, based on the parables of Jesus and what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Because this is one of the reasons I know, I know somewhere in the future, we're going to sit down and we're going to at least have some bread and grape juice with Jesus. I know that's going to be uh, something, you know, whether it's the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, whatever you want to call it, however you want to spin it, somewhere we're going to do that with Jesus Christ. And what does it say in Matthew 26, 28? For this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When he drinks it new. I don't think it's going to be alcoholic wine either. We're going to drink fruit of the vine. We're going to drink it new with Jesus Christ in his Father's kingdom. And so, I believe that's going to take place on earth. I, that, that's what I think it's going to take place. I think it's going to take place on earth. I know you're going to have to wait an extra seven years or extra three and a half years to get that meal we've all been waiting for. You know, it's going to be worth it. It's going, to be, it's going to be worth the wait. At the end of the day, it's not about the food. It's not about what we eat. It's about the fellowship. Jesus said, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Our sin has to be cleansed for God to be able to have fellowship with us. See, what, it's all, what, what these things are all about, it's all about Jesus. It's all about fellowship. The marriage supper of the Lamb and this fellowship this communion that we will have with Christ was something that was originally prepared for the Jews. God said, I'm going to have fellowship with you, but they rejected him. So we see that invitation that was extended to all the people. And I, I understand that was always God's plan. But notice too, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on earth, he's going to bring his bride with him. And he's going to make those come and worship before our feet. And to know that he loved those who are saying, you're not the chosen people. Those who are out there saying, you know, no, we're the people of God. Those who say they are Jews and are not, he's going to make them to come and worship before our feet and know that he loved us. He, they're they're going to see us clothed in those white robes, that righteousness of the saints. Those who rejected Christ, those who said we will not have him to reign over us, they're going to see us with him and Somehow, people have gotten the idea when that happens, they're all going to see him and then they're all going to get saved. But no, that is not what the Bible says in multiple places. What's going to happen is what we see in Luke 19, 27. Same thing he said in all his other parables. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. 
I, be, I believe and, and, uh, one of the things that's going to happen when Jesus first comes to earth, before we have that fellowship with him, we're going to see him take care of his enemies first. We see first Babylon being destroyed before he comes to this earth. When he comes to this earth, he destroys the armies of the earth. He's going to, of the world. He's going to destroy all those political powers and things out there that are against God and that are against Christ. And we see too that he's going to find the take the antichrist. He's going to get the false prophet. He's going to cast them into the lake of fire. He's going to take Satan himself, and he is going to bind him for a thousand years. And somewhere in there too, the remnant of those that are left over, that would not that he should reign over them. He's going to take care of them too. In what order of all these things, I don't know. I think Satan will probably be the last one that he's going to take care of. But Jesus Christ is going to deal with all of his enemies. And when he deals with all his enemies, you know what he's going to do? He's going to have some fellowship with his bride. And somewhere in there we're going to eat. I guarantee you we're going to eat. I don't know, I don't know when, how it's going to take place. But in, in, my, in, in, in my opinion, the marriage supper of the Lamb... Is something that we're, if you want to call it that, is we're going to have on earth with Jesus Christ after he takes care of his enemies in his kingdom. We are going to have that. It's going to be in his kingdom. That kingdom is going to be on earth. And I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to that. And so you'll see that this is not necessarily something people should be taken to try to uh, teach, you know, timelines you know, and, and to prove timelines. That's not what this is about. It's about the fellowship. And this definitely isn't something people should be trying to use to teach different classes of saved people. I mean, folks, based on what we saw in there, this is all about the fellowship. Where on earth do you get this idea of different classes of saved people? Where you have the bride, you have the guest, you have the friends of the bride. That's, that's such bad theology. The way the bride makes herself ready is by believing on Christ. He makes us ready. And we put our faith in Him. And the book of Revelation gives us one thing after another. I, I saw a thing the other day where someone was talking about how next to Hebrews, Revelation has more proofs that you can lose your salvation than any other place in the Bible. And I am thinking, what version of Revelation are you? The Bible specifies how we do those things. They're just taking these verses where it talks about the bride making herself ready and they're hoping you'll have no idea what the Bible says a person has to do to make themselves ready. And then they'll just tell you, well, you got to repent of all your sins and you better be successful at it. You know, or you, you know, you've got to do this, you got to do that, you got to endure to the end. They'll tell you all these things. It's, it's so bad. It's so wrong. So Hopefully that helps you uh, maybe have a little grasp on the marriage supper of the Lamb and what's to come. And if you ever hear me talking about the food we're going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is not based on theology. It's just me as a preacher, probably hungry, wanting to talk about food that I like. I'm thinking we're going to have Culver's. Why, why, why you say that? Because I'm kind of hungry and I will probably eat there tonight. And so, you know, that, that's just what's on my brain. So that's how, that's how that theology works. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the uh, things that are to come that you've told us about. You've given us little glimpses of. And Lord, there's no way we can fully understand how everything's going to play out, what all is going to take place. But Lord, uh, I thank you for what you've shown us. Help us to get excited about it, look into it, and just anticipate 
what's to come. And Lord, I pray, Lord, you help us to remember to just keep the focus on, of the book of Revelation on you, not ourselves, and help us to do that in every area of our life. In your name we pray. Amen.